Well, I think the the big thing about Cantona was his prowess in the penalty spot. He made penalty spots uh, cool. I don't know why you're laughing at that. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode three of 80% Mental, which is turning out to just be an absolutely fantastic sports psychology podcast. If you're new to the show, 80% Mental is all about how important the mind is in the world of sport and each week we'll start by asking a question about the psychology of sport and then we'll look at the evidence ask the experts and try and come up with some answers for you so in episode one we talked to dr jonathan fader about what sports psychology actually is how it can help sports performers and in episode two we explored the idea of a winning mindset and how we might develop one if one exists at all And also, don't forget to check out episode zero if you want to know a little bit more about us and what the show is about. So really, I guess following on from um, our discussion of winning mindsets in the last episode, uh, this week's question is, who, mentally speaking, is the GOAT, the greatest of all time? So who's calm under pressure? Who comes through in the clutch moments? Who gives every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears in the pursuit of excellence? And what is it that actually makes an athlete, mentally speaking anyway, great? So as usual, I'm joined by Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad. I'm a bit scared about this episode. Scared? Why scared? I, will, I, b- I believe it's a bit of competition. And also I'm looking at our guests and also realize that they seem more prepared than I am. Um, and they're all smiling and happy. So that must mean they're confident. <laughs> Well, we'll get to that. I brought in a notes. Whoa, that's an A4 page. Wow. <laughs> oh my okay, God. so you might have, have surmised already that we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. So rather than just me and Hugh uh, arguing about who's the greatest for half an hour, because we're scientists, we're going to objectively, sort of, look at the evidence and settle it once and for all. Who's the greatest athlete of all time, mentally speaking? So we've got some guests today. And each of our guests has nominated an athlete who they think is the mental goat. And we're going to objectively decide who should be awarded that title. Um, the second part of the show, we'll have a bit of a discussion around some of the things that might have come up, like what is it that actually makes an athlete great in the first place. But I'm genuinely, genuinely excited to have three distinguished guests on the show today uh, who've each, as I say, nominated an athlete that they think is the mental goat. So first up, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Chelsea Day, a sports psychologist at Ohio State University. Chelsea's a licensed psychologist who specializes in clinical sports psychology and right now provides mental health and performance enhancement services to collegiate student athletes. Chelsea, welcome to 80% Mental. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. Um, how's your week been? It's uh, It's been good. It's been a little crazy. Um, I am transitioning back into the office a little bit and really really happy to see people that don't live in my house um so that's been awesome the people live in my house are great but like you know it's been months of just of just them so i'm happy to see some some fresh faces just to put that in context we're recording this episode during a global pandemic where people are kind of uh stuck in their houses you don't just spend all day every day in your house (laughs) typically not yeah no um so who's who's the athlete that you're nominating as the mental goat 
I am nominating the one and only Tiger Woods. And uh, I think it's a hot take, but I think it's a good one. I think most people are probably familiar with who Tiger Woods is, but for the uninitiated, just tell us a little bit about, about Tiger. Tiger Woods is a multiple uh, domain record holder in a lot of performance areas in terms of wins in golf, um, who played golf since he was a teeny tiny, you know, little kid um, until currently and still playing. Um, And, you know, I think that if we look at the trajectory of his life now, we have to use the context of me being a clinical sports psychologist. It's going to make things make a lot more sense. Um, when we look at the trajectory of his life paralleled with the trajectory of his career and some of the things that he was able to win despite, um, I think I have a good case for how mentally tough or strong that he he really is. Fantastic. I think Hugh's just looking even more worried now. I have something on Tiger Woods that I will be using to put you down. <sighs> Okay, oh, I'm ready. Shots fired. I'm ready. I've got a, I can't hold up my paper to show you the notes I have, but I've got them in a Word document on the other half of the screen. So I'm ready. <laughs> Bring it. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this already. So our second guest today is none other than Todd Cawthorn. Now, if you follow basketball in the UK, you'll know who Todd is. I appreciate that's quite a small niche audience, so I'm going to introduce him <laughs> properly anyway. Uh, hailing from Roanoke, Virginia, Todd went to the College of Will- William and Mary, also in Virginia. And then Todd moved to Europe to play professionally, play basketball professionally, and ended up playing for the Sheffield Sharks for 12 seasons. And you, you won a couple of trophies there, did you not, Todd? That's right. Yeah, we won uh, the league and we won the cup in our very first season. And we, it was it was the first year that the team actually existed, so it was it was a pretty uh, pretty big achievement at the time uh, to come in and do that. And I ended up uh, playing seven more years and, and winning uh, the league, uh, won the uh, the cup again, won the trophy um, as well. So, so yeah, it was a it was a good time, and I still live in Sheffield now. Okay, and you, you played in, uh, in Europe for a bit as well, didn't you? That's correct. I played in Austria my first season, uh, which was 93-94, uh, dated myself there. And <laughs> uh, I also played in Belgium uh, for two years, which uh, I really loved, uh, and unfortunately the rest of my family did not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Sheffield. Um, Okay, so Todd, tell us a little bit about uh, the athlete who you've nominated as the mental goat. Well, I've nominated uh, Roger Federer as the the mental goat. Uh, there's there's a few reasons there. There was, I think, in tennis terms, what he's been able to achieve in his career that's actually still going now, uh, and the longevity, the the fact that he's uh, been able to overcome injuries. Uh, he has an amazing uh, win percentage. He's got the highest number of Grand Slams uh, titles of any tennis player. I think his calmness under pressure uh, and his consistency are, are two of his defining characteristics for me to name him the mental goat. Awesome. And we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Don't give too much away. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Leah Washington, a professor of sports medicine and sports psychology. 
Lee has worked at all levels from youth sports right through to pro sports, specializing in working with injured athletes and helping sports medicine professionals incorporate sports psych uh, into their clinical practice. Uh, Leah also wanted me to tell you that her favorite color is glitter. Uh, Leah, welcome to 80% Mental. Hi. How are you doing today? Spectacular. Um, you, you spent some time working in ice hockey as well, right? You... Yep, I did. I did. I worked in the Buffalo Sabres organization as an assistant athletic trainer for the Rochester Americans. Yeah. So Leah, you mentioned that uh, you, you haven't picked a hockey athlete. Tell us a little bit about the athlete that you have picked uh, or, or nominated for the Mental Goat Award. So I am nominating United States gymnast Carrie Strug. Um, most people know her for the vault um, in the 1996 Olympics. And I chose her. Um, I was a gymnast, which you can probably tell by everything about me. Um, we can't see you, Leah. It's a podcast. Yeah, but we're recording some video and you guys can see me. So it's fine. <laughs> um, so anyway, I was a gymnast. Um, and I think that, you know, she kind of, she had a huge impact culturally. But I think that even though this was one significant moment for her um, and for the United States, I think it had a lot of reverberations across the sport and across um, how we view gymnastics and as well as how gymnastics is viewed in the United States. So I think even though it was one specific moment or her mental toughness led her to this one specific moment in her sport, um, her impact on the cultural component of the sport was massive. Okay. Thank you. Um, you kind of talked about a specific moment there and I was checking it out this morning. I remember watching that because I remember kind of, I must've been about 17 and it was at that time when I was just watching literally any sport. So I was watching the gymnastics at the Olympics and I actually remember watching it um, happen, but we're going to put the link to uh, a video of it in the description for this podcast Perfect. so people can check it out. Cause it's a, it's a, if you haven't seen it, if you don't know it, it's like a, a seminal moment in, uh, in, in sports. Um, Hugh, I am absolutely just intrigued to hear who you've chosen as the mental goat and and why? Well, I'll not say why just yet, but I think it's okay. unquestion unquestionable and without doubt that Eric Cantona is the mental goat. Okay. The absolute pièce de la résistance of fortitude in the field of play and life. Okay, and just for, for people who have never heard of Eric Cantona, uh, can we have, well, who is he? Well, I, th I think he's a footballer. Um, I'm trying to remember from my childhood because I've completely <laughs> lost touch with all sport. So I okay. think he's a footballer from my childhood. Right, this is going to go amazingly well. Um, okay, here's how this is going to work then. I've come up with, with four categories, which all together will determine who the mental goat is truly is so category one is did they have anything that they had to overcome in order to be great a second category is would they still be considered mentally great if they never won anything or if they were just on a bad team and and why is that three does or did the athlete look cool while they were being awesome which I think is actually more important than a lot of people uh, give, give credit for. Uh, and four, does the athlete have a defining moment that marks them out as the, the mental goat? Um, we've also got like a fifth round, which is just the chance for anybody to uh, give any kind of last statements, anything, any last arguments about their athlete. So 
And this is already ridiculously overcomplicated for what is a non-visual medium. Um, in each category, each guest will have up to 60 seconds to talk about their athlete. After a guest has spoken, they can be asked follow-up questions by the other guests. Um, I'll allocate some points uh, for answers in each of the categories based on a system which I will be making up as I go along. Uh, and in the end, we will have scientifically, objectively decided who the mental goat is. Okay, so just, just to remind everybody who's listening, or if anybody's listening still, um, before we start... <laughs> So Dr. <laughs> Dr. Chelsea Day has picked Tiger Woods. Uh, Todd Cawthorn has picked Roger Federer. Uh, Leah Washington has picked Kerry Strug. And Hugh Gilmore has picked, bafflingly, Eric Cantona. <laughs> um, you might uh, also notice that we've kind of left some athletes out. Um, you know, for example, there's some athletes that you might have thought of that uh, don't appear in this in this list. So... Go to the website, uh, www.80percentmental.com. Leave us a comment with your nominations, or you can tweet us at EPM Podcast with your mentally great athlete suggestions and let us know why you think uh, your athlete should have made the list. Okay, let's let's get to it. And let's decide who the mental goat is. So I'm going to start with Chelsea. Did your athlete have anything uh, that they had to overcome in order to be great? Oh, did he ever. So not only was he a single sport athlete, which what we know about some of our most successful athletes in the world competed in multi-sport growing up, which actually is hugely beneficial. Um, he was very close with his father who died in 2006, following which he still was able to win many uh, events, even as his personal life and mental health was unraveling to a wild degree, um, was still able to overcome that in that time uh, to win many events. So, um, I, you know, he's still playing and playing well. He has also overcome alleged affairs, uh, crashing his car in a very public thing, a very public divorce. So, you know, he's overcome a whole lot. Um, so, I, you know, I think that uh, unequivocally, yes, is the, the long answer. Short answer. Yes is the short answer. I gave you the long answer. Okay. <laughs> Hugh, you look like you want to say something. <laughs> no comment. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, good. And also within the within the time as well. So well well done, uh, Chelsea, for that. Uh, let's go to uh, Hugh next. So Eric Cantona, did that? Did they have anything to to overcome that you can remember uh, to become great? Well, I think one of the greatest moments in sport ever was when Eric Cantona was assaulted by a fan and uh, they threw a pound coin at him or some other missile and he decided to run and drop kick the fan in the stands and basically take out, take him out, aiming for his front teeth, both both feet at teeth height, which was just exceptional athleticism. But the overcome, he had to overcome, obviously, the challenge of a prison sentence. And then when he did, he had to speak to the media and he did it by telling them that they were all just uh, seagulls that follow the trawler in his own bit of poetry. And I think that's just perfection. We might be able to end it there. I kicked someone in the teeth with both feet, prison. That's, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. So, is that, so would you consider that to be the embodiment, embodiment of resilience then? 
indeed. I mean, what could be more resilient than going, oh, this is the best bit. He said, afterwards, he says, I do what I want. I am not your role model. Like that, that is boom. You don't, you've got confidence. You don't care what society thinks. You do what you want. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've kind of veered away from overcoming obstacles, but I, I like it. Or jumping over them. <laughs> <laughs> Executing perfect flying kicks over obstacles to become great. Um, Leah, uh, Carrie Strug, anything to overcome to be great? Well, I think, <clears throat> I mean, she was only, I think, 18 at the time of this Olympics. So she didn't have a whole lot to go through in her life. She did go through a bunch of um, coaching changes and she had um, had had some pretty severe injuries. And so she was kind of, um, you know, if you are familiar with, you know, the Olympic cycle, by the time they get to the Olympics, they're sort of all kind of held together by duct tape and paper clips and kind of like, so everybody on that team kind of was dealing with some injuries at the time. Um, she wasn't in like the, uh, so she wasn't in kind of like a peak condition when she started, um, to begin with. Um, and also for those of you who are not familiar with gymnastics, a lot of gymnasts, she started when she was three years old, she started competing when she was eight. Um, and it's not uncommon to have the same coach through your whole life. And so there was a lot of sort of upheaval in her career up to this point. So I wouldn't say that there was maybe necessarily, um, she didn't crash a car. She didn't cheat on anybody. Um, that, you know, however, that I, that I'm aware of entirely possible. Um, but given the fact that she's had, she had a, a fairly, um, up and down sort of coaching choices, um, but was able to sort of maintain her stability in her over her career. Um, it was has always been sort of like this unsung, um, very consistent athlete throughout. I think says a lot about her. Okay, I mean that was way over a minute, but it's the first round, so we're just kind of getting into it. I'm going to let you off with that. That's that's fine. Um, so, uh, who are we left with? Todd, uh, Roger Federer. Did Roger Federer have to overcome anything great? No. Did he have to overcome anything to become great? Well, I think I think for him, the obstacles that he's had to contend with, uh, they're based more around, I think, the the general life of, of a lot of tennis players, whereby they're sent away very young uh, to live on their own or to live in uh, perhaps in Bradenton, Florida, where a lot of them end up to start with uh, at IMG. But he actually went away to, uh, sounds really picturesque, actually, uh, Lake Geneva in uh, Switzerland, which is where the tennis academy is. And he, uh, but he struggled, you know, I think he struggled when he was younger. He struggled living away from home. Uh, so really the, the career that he's had almost, almost never got started because he, he struggled mentally to cope, I think, with, with those obstacles. He's also had a lot of injuries, uh, most notably, uh, a knee injury and a back injury sustained to one in 2014, one in 2016, but he ended up being the comeback player of the year in 2018. Uh, and getting back on top in, in, in tennis that year. And he also has two sets of twins. I mean, that that is pretty difficult. Uh, and I know he's on the road a lot, 
But anybody who can cope with two sets of twins, I think, has probably got to overcome some obstacles. Yeah, I think that's actually just jumped him up from uh, third place up into up into second. Uh, just just the twins thing alone. So, anybody got any any challenges or any comeback? Because I mean, I think I've got some things to say about Tiger Woods, but I want to open it up to the floor floor first. Well, I don't think golf's that difficult of a sport. I mean, it's essentially <laughs> a walk for a start, and um, I mean, it's more like a you know, skill. But here's yeah, it's the, like, but that's true. But here's why then they are mental goats because it is not physically demanding. But it, it is a fully mental sport. So when you can succeed, it's because you have mastered the mental aspect of it because we've seen very out of shape, very successful golfers. So it's really all, it's maybe more than 80% mental. That, that, that's, that is a fair point. I was thinking more about kind of overcoming obstacles. You, you, does that count if they're obstacles that you've kind of created in your own life? Yeah, that was my question. What about self-imposed obstacles? I mean, it's still an obstacle. I mean, I feel like yeah, many obstacles are self-imposed. Overuse injuries are self-imposed. Well, I think I think you train, you pushed through, you didn't take the time you needed, maybe you didn't get the right treatment. So I'm just are, saying, are you suggesting that the affair was an overuse injury? Because that's a whole other show. Uh, that... He did go to sex addiction treatment, so we could call that an overuse injury. <laughs> oh, fair enough, Todd. You were going to say something. <laughs> I, I, I think both with Cantona and with Tiger Woods, I'd argue that. Um, they they were probably both had attributes of being mentally strong, but they also had huge public mental breakdowns um, that they that they went through. Uh, Tiger Woods, so you could argue that he overcame that, got, came back, uh, won the um, uh, won the Masters, I believe. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I think I think it's. It, it is that uh, being able to cope with that success, which I think is why Federer even has, you know, not only has he been able to cope with that success, but he's been able to create a brand like he, everything he encompasses um, is a brand. And, and also the charitable work that he's done as well, um, you know, 50 million dollars of charity work, uh, you know, affected over a million children. Uh, throughout, most notably in South Africa, but throughout Africa as well, uh, educating them. Uh, and his foundation does amazing work. So there's there's kind of that, so that all-encompassing um, brand that he's been able to create of himself, of uh, you know being being consistent, being a winner, but also helping other people and and helping with his foundation as well. To be nitpicky, I think that Federer is clearly like the best human of the bunch i might argue but if we're talking the most handsome for sure the, for certain but if we're talking you know purely mental kind of toughness and skill you can be a shitty person am i allowed to swear on this you can yeah, be you can a shitty person and still like perform out of your mind so I don't feel like you get points for being a good person. Well, we can we can get into that a little bit later because um, <laughs> we need to move on. We need to move on to round two. I've awarded some points for that, which I will I'll tell you what they are later. Um, round round two 
is would they still be considered mentally great if they'd never won? Like if they were on like a bad team or if they, you know, they just hadn't achieved kind of the level of success that they had had um, had achieved. So we'll start with Hugh this time. Um, Eric Cantona, would he still be considered mentally great if he wasn't an exceptionally talented football player? Well, I think the the big thing about Cantona was his prowess in the penalty spot. Um, like he made penalty spots uh, cool. So uh, yeah, I don't know why you're laughing at that. He <laughs> <laughs> made penalty spots cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like he was good at them. And kids were all like, when kids in the playground were taking penalties, that's who they thought they were. Was Eric Cantona? Yeah, that's fair. So would he would he have been mentally great if he if he was wasn't quite as spectacular a role model in the penalty department? Well, I, th- I think that's the thing. Individually, he was good. Um, and he would have been individually good in an individual setting, even if he was on a crap team. So like, that's there's nothing more individually good about standing up and taking a penalty. So yeah, I think uh, he's good. Like no one in England can take a penalty. So like, you <laughs> knew that was Cantona coming. Has, like you knew that pretty was good. You know, I, I want to go on record and say that England have turned around their penalty woes and will never lose a penalty shootout again. Bold statement. <laughs> I mean, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, okay, so uh, Leah then, uh, Carrie Strug, would she still be considered mentally great if she if she hadn't, you know, won the gold medal? If if America had walked away with a bronze, would we still be talking about Carrie Strug in the same way? Well, I think I, the argument really is that she wouldn't have had her moment had she not been as mentally great as she is. That uh, as gymnasts, I think they're all gymnasts are mentally tough that, you know, find somebody else who wants to flip upside down on a, you know, four inch wide piece of wood um, that you have to have a certain baseline level of mental toughness to be a gymnast in the first place. And that she never would have had her moment had she not been as mentally tough as she was. Okay. So I I just want to, I'm going in hard here. Leah, be prepared. What what's the difference? You're saying they're mentally tough. What's the difference between uh, mental toughness and just delusionary stupidity? Because like attempting to do a backflip on a beam, like just trying that doesn't make me mentally tough. It would make me delusionary stupid. And you know, it's a it's a bit glossy. Just saying, oh, they're mentally tough. Like really. So I understand what you're saying. However, it's only delusionary if you don't know what the outcome is right like you have to sorry who who lives near a train track oh sorry that's me okay <laughs> the train doesn't agree with you <laughs> i think the train is cheering me on quite frankly the train is platforming uh, you <laughs> yes while it would appear on the surface that gymnasts are completely delusional and insane um i think that you know, there, there are crazy people who like want to flip off a thing once for funsies. Um, but then there are the gymnasts who think, you know what? No, I can actually, I can do this better. I can make this look good. I can do this with style. And I think that's where the mental toughness comes in, where you can say, no, I'm going to keep at this until it looks awesome. But can I also make a bit of a counter argument that maybe being delusionally stupid is one of the greatest aspects of mental toughness at large. 
that when we think about mentally tough people, they're often putting themselves in ridiculous and outrageous circumstances over and over and over that people who do not have what we define as mental toughness don't do, which is what sets them apart. Divers diving off 10 meter platforms, both mentally tough, but like pretty stupid. Footballers standing within feet, they have to, they have to put their hands on their crotch. So they don't like get their stuff smashed. Like <laughs> I'm not trying to stand in front of like a really good footballer kicking a ball at me, like a hard pass. So I think that a component of mental toughness is being able to suspend reality and stay engaged in a little bit of delusional stupidity. I think without that, you can't be mentally tough. Like I'm also I mean, not think, standing in yeah. front of a tennis serve. Like if Federer served, it, I would like lay on the ground. I'd be like, nope, I'm like, I'm so <laughs> not into that. I'd nope right out of that. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think that maybe those things are kind of one and the same. Yeah, Federer, 77% lifetime first serve points won. 89%. Because it's scary. Yeah, 89% lifetime of service games won. 89%. Todd's done some research. So speaking of speaking of uh, of, of Arfed and his uh, percentage of first serves in, would he still be considered mentally great, Todd, uh, had his first serve percentage been somewhat lower? Well, po- possibly not. I think that you know, I think it does. I think achievement, uh, winning, consistently winning, uh, overcoming other great athletes, other mentally great athletes. Or men, or situations, you know, as in, um, if if you overcome, you know, that that situation to to make yourself great, and and score that perfect ten or or whatever it is, you know, it, it, and the fact that we've the people who did research and cared about this episode picked individual uh, athletes, individual sport athletes, um, and. <laughs> You know, the, the, the amount um, the amount of that they have to invest of themselves and the amount of training and what they have to give up. So there's that sacrifice element. And I think if you play in a team sport, because I played in a team sport, I've, I've, I like playing in a team sport. I, I think I would really struggled to play an individual sport. I mentally I I may not have done, uh, you know. Uh, anything in a, in, a, in a sport whereas playing a team sport I bought into that ethos more and I was more uh, adept at, at playing within a team so I think that those characteristics come to the forefront um, but no I, I don't think um, you know I, I don't think that he would be considered or for me to consider him or just to generally be considered if he hadn't won so much. Chelsea what do you what do you uh I have to say about your athlete, would would Tiger Woods still be considered great if he just hadn't been as successful? I'm going to take a semi-non-committal stance on this, but I think we have a little bit of evidence that, you know, pre-2009 Tiger, obviously, and, and most definitely was the most successful, the um, most notable. But we also then saw him not win a lot from 2010 through the most recent Masters win, that there wasn't a lot of um, notable performances like there was before that. And yet I still think that, you know, when you watch him play those rounds, even when he's not um, winning, 
I think that you can still see a lot of aspects of that mental toughness, despite the fact that he wasn't winning. So I think we have a little bit of evidence, you know, now a little bit of that's riding high off of having been so incredible for so many years that I think we give him a little bit more leeway and grace there when he was in that period of non-winning. But he's probably one of, he's probably the only athlete in the group where, where we actually got to watch him because he had that visibility and spotlight when he wasn't winning. And still in terms of some of that consistency and, um, you know, demeanor and and what you can see on the course, um, you know, I, I think that very likely, though, I do think an argument can be made that that's because we had seen him as great. And so we had the, the opportunity to see him as less performing. So um, I think probably, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to go on record saying unequivocally yes. I think it's difficult in any individual sport to say that somebody would be considered to be mentally great if they don't win. Uh, I, I think that in a team sport, um, you you can potentially be considered great um, and and not like, I don't know, and never have won an NBA championship a la, I don't know, Charles Barkley, maybe somebody like that. You can be considered to be a really good player but you just didn't didn't win uh, the any the NBA championships. You know, I think that, that that's possible for an individual sport. I, ju- I just don't think it can go hand in hand. Yeah, I think it's a tough question to really sort of parse out, right? Because it's like at, at a certain level, you know, when you reach this elite level, like everybody is good. And so, you know, the thing that's going to separate you is the mental component. So you can't say, oh, well, they wouldn't have been mentally tough had they not won because they wouldn't have won had they not been mentally tough. So for me, it's like it's a circular art. It's like begging the question. Right. Like, you know, I think particularly in an individual sport, when I think about like Carrie's training that she did prior to um, the Olympics, it was her and her teammate, Dominique Mochianu in the gym by themselves six hours a day, every single day, just them and the coaches, literally nobody else. Like you can't, you have to have a certain level of toughness if just to show up every single day by yourself and put in all those hours. I also think we wouldn't know who they are in an individual sport versus a team sport. You can be on a chronically underperforming team and still be an obviously star player. Um, and I think that in a lot of individual sports, you would never have the platform to to be known. So, you know, there may be athletes who are more mentally tough if we were able to more objectively look at it but we don't know that they exist because for whatever reason they've not been elevated to the level of visibility um we always i always joke with friends that like there may be farmers in the u.s who have the potential to be the best basketball player who ever lived but they're too busy farming um it's an unrealized talent. And so I think that that's the trouble too with an individual sport athlete is they only get the platform for us to consider them in this if they've won. So if they're not winning, sure, maybe they're more mentally tough, maybe, but we don't know who they are. But there's also, there's also an argument to say that like football, tennis, golf, to, to your argument, you can play any of those sports to a decently high level for a really, really long time and earn good money and earn a good salary in gymnastics, that might not be the case. Even even be amazing at gymnastics, you might not earn any money. So you're, if you look at the risk versus reward and that and the value of, of what being the athlete brings to you, 
actually, if you're a gymnast and you're not successful, you're not going to get a lot of value out of being the gymnast from a financial point of view. Whereas, I mean, who knows who Craig Stadler is? Do you know who Craig Stadler is? I do not. He's a really good golf. He's a really good golfer. He played uh, through the 80s, uh, through the 90s, and won tons of money. But nobody knows who he is. He, you know, he, he didn't win any majors. He, he wasn't. So, so I think you can, you know, you, you have to have kind of that, that different viewpoint on the, on the sport and what it brings to you as a, as a reward as well. Yeah, I mean, I think to Todd's point, like if, if I asked you to name any of the other six members of that gymnastics team, not a, nobody knows who those people are. Mary Lou Retton. You know, and she was no. 1984. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, but like we, we only have these like singular gymnasts that have these like major moments because the only time we pay attention to gymnastics is in the Olympics. They, they're clearly not doing it for the notoriety. They're clearly not doing it for any kind of paycheck. They're, you know, and now, I mean, now they have like sponsors and things like that and they can sort of make a living out of it. But, you know, at that time, especially in 1996, like that was not a thing. And United States gymnastics was not even a thing. Um, and that's, you know, part of why I think one of the, her, you know, Carrie Strug's biggest accomplishments is that it put United States gymnastics on the map. What's Cantona's uh, kind of national team? Uh, what, what, what did he do for the national team? Uh, I think he's French, so he probably played for that. Um, <laughs> Good guess. And, and that's, <laughs> that's the, the extent of my football knowledge. I think I've been found out as somebody who doesn't follow sport. Um, let's, let's move on. Some really interesting stuff there around kind of the idea that these, that there's these really mentally strong athletes who their, their strength or their, their kind of greatness mentally is in the grind and in the longevity rather than in the perhaps success that they may or may not have the opportunity to actually achieve. Um, let's move on to by far the most important round. Uh, did the athlete look cool when they were performing? Um, Leah, let's go to you first. Oh, a hundred percent. Carrie Strug looked amazing. So I want to actually give a little teeny bit of context to this in case anybody's not familiar with the vault as it happened. Um, this was the first year that, or the first Olympics that the United States uh, had the potential to win a gold medal as a team. Um, the Russians slash Soviet Republic had won every single team gold medal since 1948. So by the time we get to 1996, we're sort of at this like changing of the guard moment and they go into the final round and the United States is actually pretty up ahead by almost a whole point, which is a lot in gymnastics. Um, And so Carrie Strug is the last competitor in the last event. And it's basically all down to her. Um, as to whether or not the United States wins a gold medal. And she fell on her first vault and she injured her ankle. And so she had a whole moment on the mat where she was like, "Mm, this doesn't feel great. Um, And she even talked about how she was like, I thought, you know, maybe it would just kind of like, I could shake it off and it would be fine. Because that happens a lot in gymnastics. Like you land on your face and you just need a minute to like gather yourself. You know, it stings and then you're okay. And she she said, you know, by the time she got down to the, the back end of the, 
the runway um, and the pain wasn't subsiding. And, you know, she's shaking it. She, you could see her like rolling it out. And of course the commentators are like, oh my God, she's hurt. She's everything. It's bad. Um, you know, she goes, she, I mean, and it's not like she was on bars where she could have just swung around and then just maybe had a little landing and then would be fine. She had to run full speed down this runway tumble and land on this ankle. And it turned out actually she had torn two different ligaments in her ankle at the time. And she landed it on one foot. And if that's not fucking badass, then I don't know what is. <laughs> she looked awesome. And there's 32,000 people in the arena and they're going berserk. And then they're, and they're also cutting away to like the Russian gymnasts who are literally sobbing because they know that they're not going to win the gold medal for the first time in 50 years. Uh, well, I have a thought on this. I mean, do, does the outcome determine the greatest of all time? Because I can think of a rugby player for Ulster who cleared out a scrum with a broken forearm. And, you know, everyone was saying, oh, he's brave, he's this, he's that, he's other. But if you know, taking that risk, he could have actually ended his career if he had a, got like a perforation of his skin and damaged some nerve from if he had a, got another tackle on it. Same with um, your gymnast. I mean, if she actually destroyed her ankle completely in that landing and maybe then did out the rest of her entire career, is is the outcome a signifier of what's important? I mean, how, could, how do we know that's not just a stupid attempt that she shouldn't have pulled out? I mean, she's kind of talked about this a little bit in that she thought, you know, she was in her head. She was like, this is what I've worked my entire life for. This is what we've always wanted. This is, um, she, you know, in her head, she was like, this has to go away. This pain has to go away. It just has to, it has to go away because this is it. This is everything. And so I think if you asked her again in this moment, if she would have done anything differently, I don't think she would have. I think she would have, I would absolutely would have, think she would have vaulted again no question and and it just it looked cool and that's worth lots and lots of points amazing todd i mean roger federer did he look cool does he look cool when he's playing i mean that's an easy one yeah it's um it's an easy question to answer for him he's he's got this kind of persona these characteristics of uh he doesn't scream uh, he doesn't shout like when he serves. He doesn't do a thing when he serves. Um, I'm just going to clip just that noise. <laughs> Soundbite for you. Um, it's a drop for your next podcast. Um, he he just you know I guess the hair, the bandana, uh, the he's he's six one, but he's like he's compact. He's fairly he's well built without having one forearm that's three times the size of the other one, uh, which you see a lot of times in, in some tennis players as well. And the way he kind of moves around the court look, has been commented by everyone on how effortless he is able to, to get around the court. And then off the court as well, I mean, even, even this year, he's the highest paid athlete in the entire world. His sponsorship um, brands want to be associated with him. Uh, he earned 106 million dollars uh, this past year, so I, I think that not not only do I think he's cool, and do not tennis fans think he looks cool, but I think the biggest determining factor is that brands want to be associated with him, and they and they want to sponsor him. So I think that that there's a 
that they know that they can access um, large and vast amounts of people uh, who who think who also think he he looks cool and want to be like him. Chelsea, what about Tiger Woods? Does Tiger look cool? So for a second, I was like, oh, I gotta crawl out of the pit on this category from the bottom, but. Um, then Todd made this great point about sponsorships. And if we actually look back to 2006, 7, 8, 9, uh, Tiger was, was what he's talking about with Federer. He had brands clamoring after him. He had his own Gatorade line. He, um, people wanted to be associated with him. He was a bit of a turning point in terms of apparel. Um, there are way cooler looking, way cooler looking golfers now in terms of apparel with some of the young guys who can be a little bit more bold with what they wear. Um, but a tiger kind of came in with this Nike contract and had some pretty cool outfits at a time when we were transitioning away from the funky plaids and like weird polyester golf outfits <laughs> and moved into a little bit more kind of slim cut, you know, able to show that he was also one of the more fit golfers coming in at the time versus our smoking, drinking, heavier golfers. Um, he had a, a lot more coolness. Now, not not to be ageist, I think he's, again, less cool looking now compared to who he's competing against. But I think, it, I think Tiger's- he also always has to be wearing a hat. I think there's the problem with Tiger Woods is that when he takes his hat off, he looks well nothing. now, but I don't know that, that I think that I think that I definitely agree with you in the last few years, but I think, yeah, that, he like, just needs to bring it home. Just bring it home. Tiger in the, yes, but I'm, I'm trying to, I'm calling back to the early tiger who was one of the cooler athletes in his prime. So again, if we're talking over the career, which I would argue is what goat is considering, right? Not just like a one-off. You're not a goat. Okay. If you have like a couple good years, I think a goat is someone who persistently and consistently embodies that and so you know he's been cool for a really long time and now he's getting a little older and he's less cool but we're all getting less cool arguably sorry guys um then maybe in our leah we were way cooler uh a handful of years ago in paris um but (laughs) you know so, so again i think that he was really cool and i think that you know if we go with todd's kind of sponsorship piece that was a proven thing back in in kind of his peak i mean his mugshot's pretty cool you know his mugshot picture <laughs> is pretty cool cooler than many i would also like to say that uh carrie strug was on saturday night live oh, and nice. was in two different sports center commercials and if you've ever listened to her talk, she sounds like a tiny little chipmunk because she is. And <laughs> the fact that she was able to go on Saturday Night Live and make fun of herself, um, I think says a lot about her personality and how uh, she could have been like, mm, oh my God, whatever. And then like gone on with her life. But she knows she's, she knows what she sounds like. She knows what she's, she's literally four feet, seven inches tall. She's a miniature human being. And, you know, I think I think the ability to laugh at yourself like automatically elevates you. Amazing, Hugh. Uh, I, I I really want to know what you're going to say about Eric Cantona. Well, well, Chelsea thinks that you know sponsorship uh, is important. And, and Todd made that argument. That I second yeah, it. And Todd, Todd made it. You second it. The two of you are in cahoots, and I'm going to bring you both down. Um, the problem is <laughs> right. Sponsorship is money. But Kant and I used to do this thing was collar, 
where he put his collar up. <laughs> and that was really cool to the point where every school in the country had this issue with kids putting their collar up. But not only that, nobody cares about sponsorship. It's about tattoos, right? How many people out there have tattoos of a flying Frenchman with his collar up landing two feet on the, a football hooligan's uh, skull? I would say there's at least two people, and that's much more <laughs> impressive than any sponsorship. Not, that's not based on any kind of knowledge whatsoever, is it? Hugh, I mean, that was way better of an argument than I expected about your footballer. So <laughs> I'm very impressed and pleased with that argument because I agree that many of those things are very cool. Yeah, I mean, as, as impartial as I'm supposed to be during this, Eric Cantona is probably one of the coolest people on earth. So, I mean, Hugh gets lots of points for that round. Um, but everybody else can have some points as well, so it's fine. Um, so we're going to move, move We're going to move on to the last round now, which is the defining moment round. And because this has taken way, way, way too long, um, I'm going to limit you to, to 45 seconds for this round. So when your 45 seconds is up, you'll hear this. Um, <laughs> and we're going to start with Todd this time. Roger Federer, uh, does the athlete have a defining moment that marks them out as the greatest athlete of all time? I um, Well, a man with 20 Grand Slam wins, where, whereby each one is probably just as sweet as the other. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that there's um, or he's ever come out and said that one is, you know, stands out ab- above the rest. Uh, he's also played in front of the two largest tennis crowds of of all time. His consistency and how he's been able to win uh, over his career. Uh, I mean, you know, his win percentage is is eighty two percent. He's, um, you know, he he's he's just been against the top ten. He's got a sixty five percent win percentage. So I, th- I think for him, it's not just about, you know, winning the Super Bowl or winning the World Series. It's, it's not like that when it comes to, uh, to tennis. What he's been able to do is, has been amazing over his whole career. Chelsea. Um, what's his name? Tiger Woods. I forgot his name. <laughs> well, that, there's some golfer we're talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that not that dissimilar to what Todd's saying. You know, when you're talking about someone who's won 82 PGA Tour events, has the second most major wins with 15, has the lowest career scoring average in PGA history. Um, maybe it was when he was the youngest to win a career grand slam. I think that he's had a number of, of really great wins that have been, uh, I, I, th- I would argue he's had a number of them. So from kind of the earlier big, exciting, maybe his first win to being able to make this comeback at the Masters, um, you know, I think that he's had a variety of of major moments, but kind of, defining different parts of his career because it's been so long there's been phases um i think you can make an argument that he's had a few of them um and that they have created the catalog of greatness um in his career okay same question hugh gilmore does eric Cantona have a defining moment i think i know what this might be what this might be <laughs> well uh, I did a quick bit of Googling there uh, in the interim, and uh, I found out he shared a video that uh, was not safe for work online. Um, but And I was going to talk about that, but then I, d- I don't want to direct people to that video, but I thought like that 
I don't know if he is good because of that video now. So my point will be that he is currently on Netflix. I haven't watched what he's got on Netflix, but I did Google. He's done 38 different movies. That's more than me. So that's bound to be a defining moment of his career. <laughs> um, if any one of those movies stands out as, as particularly career-defining? The best one. Okay. Uh, so, uh, no, no, Leah, uh, defining moment. Again, we've kind of gone over this. Did Kerry Strug have any other defining moments, or are we just going to kind of focus back in on that greatest moment I mean, of 1996 the, gymnastics in the Olympics? It is the defining moment, and it kind of set off the United States as becoming a powerhouse uh, in the sport. I think that, you know, when ESPN did their 25th anniversary and they look back on the top 100 um, sporting events, it was ranked 51st. Um, and there's, that was the only gymnastics moment on there. Um, and I think what is really important is that, uh, you know, it kind of, it really changed the tone for the whole sport and listening to her talk about it. You know, one of the things that I love is that she said, she said, I was able to put aside my fears or rational notions of what might happen and let my body do what it knows how to do. She'd done the vault a thousand times. Um, she said, I let the adrenaline help push me through, but I had put in the hard work prior to that moment. There's no special ingredient to doing amazing things. And it's about doing the work and it's about relying on uh, your ability to push aside everything else and be as tough as possible in the moment where everything matters. And we're the moment where it's the most maximum amount of pressure you could possibly uh, put on a person. Um, and that to rise to that occasion, I think, uh, speaks for itself. Okay. What, what a, a way to kind of finish. Um, so at the end of the, the first four rounds, um, the scores are that everybody has some points. Um, how many I will leave up to you to decide. Uh, the, Final round is just for any any kind of final comments. If you've got anything that you really want to get off your chest that you haven't had a chance to to say about your athlete to really sell them as the mental goat, um, any kind of final comments from anyone? I think we have to give credit to the idea that Tiger Woods was able to perform under pressure when every aspect of his life was crumbling around him and that he was still able to show up and perform for two years of his life melting into absolute shit and yet showed up on the golf course and consistently played and consistently won. So I think toughness is when life is shit and performance is still fantastic. Anyone, anyone else? Any final comments? Is there any, any facts about Eric Cantona that you just want to just get out there, Hugh? When the seagulls <laughs> follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. The end. I, I, I'm I'm dumbfounded. I have, to, I have to say one of the best goals I've ever seen live was Eric Cantona scoring at Sheffield United um, in a cup uh, FA Cup game. I think it was around about sort of 90, I would say 95, 96, somewhere in there. Um, just the amazing goal, most amazing goal I've ever seen. My granny could score at Sheffield United. <laughs> oh. I live in Sheffield. I'm not from Sheffield, so yeah. I don't take any offense yeah, me, at that whatsoever. I'm not um, sure if you're trying to offend me, but it's just not working. No, I know. <laughs> I have no affinity for either Sheffield team, but I will go and watch them play if I have free tickets. 
Anyone, anybody else? Leah, Todd, any any last uh, last statements? I think it's important to remember that Carrie Strug was not supposed to be the star of this team, that it was supposed to be Dominique Mochianu, that she was the next Nadia Comaneci, and that everybody had hyped her up, and she was supposed to be this amazing thing. And she's the one who fell and choked right before Carrie Strug went. And Carrie Strug had been a really consistent uh, team member. This was her second Olympics. Um, she was put on the um, in the anchor spot in vault because she had won it at the at the Olympic trials. But um, nobody was really talking about her. That nobody was really paying attention to her. That she was there. That everybody's like, great, she's doing a good job. But she's not this person. Who she's not this person. And mm-hmm. You know, she really stepped up to the moment and she put everything that she'd had. She even talked about um, her cue phrases that she used right before she vaulted. Um, When it was all down to her, she's the one who was able to step up to the plate. And now she's the only one that everybody remembers. I I looked up an article, uh, four attributes that lead to athletic greatness. And they were care pride, passion, and high expectations. And I think I, I could give to all, all of the athletes who were chosen today. I think they've, they feature prominently in all those categories. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's, um, it's been really interesting hearing about athletes in a different way uh, and also hearing about some athletes that I didn't know a whole lot about. So I suppose, Pete, uh, what I find interesting is that we've all made different value judgments on what we think the greatest of all time is. And it's can we identify one value that that contains the highest good or the highest order uh, of performance? And I think what I find interesting is that can our guests uh, condense what we've talked about into one single word as a... Uh, as a characteristic that they would define as the greatest characteristic. Can I have two words? Okay. I know. um, Emotional agility. Interesting. Leah. Persistence. Todd. Graceful. Good words. Your question, Hugh, word that sums up Eric Cantona. There are many, but I think passion. Yeah, that occasionally spilled over into assault. Blind rage. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, it's a really interesting question. And, you know, we, we were going to have a bit of a discussion around some of this stuff, um, you know, afterwards. Uh, by, by the way, I've decided that it's um, as much as I want Eric Cantona to win, um, I, I've awarded the title of the mental goat based on everything that we've taken into consideration today to, um, to Carrie Strug. Woo! And just watch the video that is, uh, linked to in the description and you, you'll, you'll understand why. But it, again, it's, uh, you know, as he was saying, it's been a really interesting discussion and, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, what it, what it actually means to be the mental goat you know because it's more than just kind of toughness and we're going to do an episode around toughness and what toughness actually means and some of the issues that we might have with with mental toughness but 
you know, we talked about whether people can be great without winning or whether it's like the longevity that's, that's the, you know, where the greatness lies. Um, we've talked about overcoming adversity and resilience, uh, a lot of different, you know, aspects of what it, what it means to be mentally great. So what we're going to do is bring this episode to a close here, and we're going to pick this discussion up again in the next episode of 80% Mental. Thanks to all of our guests today. It's been a, a fantastic, informative, insightful discussion all around mental greatness and what it takes to be mentally great. And I'm really looking forward to continuing that discussion in the next episode. So I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today. Please do subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Check out the website, 80percentmental.com. 80% mental is all words. And you can tweet us at epmpodcast. Let us know who you think the mental goat is, and I hope that you will join us next time to continue this discussion. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Well, I won't see you, because it's a podcast.